This is an ABC podcast. Hey, good news, everyone. We know what to do if another big asteroid's heading for Earth threatening humanity. We can take it out like they did in the movies, or can we? Hey, it's Dave Marchese with you for Hack. In a bit, you're going to hear what happened when some of our best scientists slammed a spacecraft into an asteroid this morning. Are we going to have to do this on a much bigger scale in the future? Also, does Tassie need its own AFL team? If you've got big thoughts on this one, I'm sure you're going to want to listen out. First, though. Hack. We've lost more family members to the sea. Picking up our loved one remains like shells off the beach. It affects you. On Triple J. You know, sometimes on Fridays, big things drop, like big news stories. But with the excitement of the weekend, it's easy to get missed. You know, people don't realise that they've happened, even though they are really significant. And that happened last week when there was a major decision in a landmark climate change case. Maybe you did read something about this. The United Nations ruled the Australian government had violated the human rights of Torres Strait Islanders by failing to act on climate change. It's huge. And not only for us in Australia, the decision set an international precedent for Indigenous rights and climate justice. In a bit, we're going to speak to someone who knows a lot about this, but first, Joe Lauder fills us in. Oh, the, the feeling is... It's a feeling where I really don't want that feeling to go. <laughs> um, wake up with big smile and, you know, just thanking God and thanking my ancestors, to be honest. This is Yassi Mosby. He's a traditional owner of Massic Island in the Torres Strait. He's one of a group known as the Torres Strait Eight. They took a complaint to the United Nations about the Australian government's lack of action on climate change and how it violated their human rights. They found out on Friday that they were successful. Just celebrating it with the, the, the families here on Masig, it, it was a beautiful feeling, especially when the children understood what it meant and they were happy, like knowing that this fight was and is for their future. It's been three years since Yassi and the team lodged their complaint to the United Nations Human Rights Committee. Their argument was this, that the former federal government had breached their human rights by not adequately acting on climate change and protecting their islands from the impacts of climate change. For Yassi, this is a deeply personal case. He got involved after a king tide in 2018 washed away the burial site of his ancestors. It washed her remains out. And she was scattered all over the beach, her skulls, her ribs, her forearms. It was sad. And um, walking on the beach with my children, picking her remains up like shells off the beach was a very, very, you know, it affected me personally, mentally, physically and spiritually. It's not just that either. Yes, he says the changing climate is affecting their daily way of life on their low-lying islands. We Torres Strait Islanders, we saltwater people, we... We're really in tune and with nature, sky, sea and land. Everything around us, the plants, when we look at a certain plant, when a, a certain plant flowers, we know at that particular time a certain fish is full and is in the abundance. We go and, you know, collect that fish. We have longer droughts, ridiculous storms which comes through. It's not the same. It, it doesn't come on the, you know, the time when it's supposed to come. Their argument focused on a few particular rights that are set out in the UN Human Rights Treaty that Australia signed up to. Specifically, their right to enjoy their culture and to be free from arbitrary interferences and their right to life. 
On Friday, the UN Human Rights Committee handed down their findings and said that Australia had violated the first two rights, but not the right to life. It also called on the Australian government to pay compensation. It's a breakthrough in First Nations rights and climate justice, and I think one that's going to have you know, ramifications for a long, long time. That's Simon Bradshaw, the research director at the Climate Council. He says the success of this complaint really goes to the core of a major issue with climate justice. The awful injustice and inequity here is that it's typically communities who have um, contributed the very least, and in this case almost nothing, to the causes of climate change, who are so connected to place, who are suffering some of the worst and most brutal uh, impact. This ruling is really significant internationally because it says that countries can be held legally responsible for the impacts of climate change if they're not doing enough to reduce their emissions or help communities adapt. One of the UN committee members has said that this ruling creates a way for individuals to make more claims like this. States that fail to protect individuals under their jurisdiction from the adverse effects of climate change may be violating their human rights under international law. It also ties into a major conversation that's going to be happening at the next UN climate conference, COP27 in Egypt, around what's called loss and damages. Basically, it's how vulnerable communities and developing countries can fund their response to climate change and the increase in climate disasters that they'll experience. And a ruling like this brings more and more focus onto that need for wealthy developed countries to be providing adequate support to communities overseas and within their own borders that are suffering from that loss and damage, including financial support, obviously. For Yassi Mosby, he's celebrating with his community this week, but knows that this isn't the end of it. No, I'm worried. Like, this this win is not a stop. It's, it's the beginning. And we will still push on because this fight will be bigger. There will be a lot of obstacles in our path where we're going to have to jump over. I'm worried. And like I said, and I always said that, I will fight right through till my heart stops ticking. You're listening to Hack on Triple J. Joe Lauder with that story. I want to get into this one a bit more. So with us now is Tish King, a Torres Strait Islander with the Groundswell Group. Hey, Tish, thanks for coming on Hack. I'm guessing you were pretty stoked with this decision from the UN. Did you expect that it'd go this way? Oh, look, I mean, it was definitely, um, it, it was definitely, I guess, like 50-50 there at one point, especially, you know, with, you know, our last government. And so really just um, wasn't too sure where this would go. And so it's just been like super emotional. Yeah. <laughs> oh, like wow. I bet. I mean, the UN is saying that there should be compensation for people affected. Is this something that Torres Strait Islanders have been raising with both the previous government and with this current government? I think most importantly, we just wanted to amplify, you know, the issues that we were facing. It was more about what was, you know, what was at stake for us, which was our cultures, our stories, our kinships, and food security, and importantly, our island home. And for me, disconnected and being here on mainland Australia, uh, you know, I, for me, it was just my, my culture and, you know, the risk that I wouldn't be able to practice uh, and risk of that. Yeah, because that's the thing, though. Like, there's a lot of attention on how to stop damage from happening in the future, but there's not as much attention on thinking about what climate change has already done to some communities. Isn't that right? 
Absolutely. And I think like Simon from Climate Council really touched on that. It's like, you know, those uh, those communities, not just here but globally, that are, you know, hit first and worst uh, don't actually contribute to our emissions. And so we actually have to look at who's really accountable for this. We're still waiting for the federal government to respond to this decision. What are you hoping the government's going to do and say? Look, um, you are right. We are still waiting um, for the government to respond. But I think, you know, we're really excited um, and, uh, you know, we're looking forward to hoping to, you know, work together with government and other stakeholders. Uh, you know, this, it's it's we're in a really critical decade and we must work together in order for real change. And so... You know, from this, you know, the first thing we'd love to see is, you know, government really um, work together with communities for seawalls. You know, while it's not, um, while it's a Band-Aid fix, you know, this is something that can really prevent um, and create more longevity on our islands. Yeah, it's stuff that we're hearing loud and clear from people in these communities. We're going to keep track of this and uh, all of the reaction to it when the federal government does respond. Tish King from Groundswell, thank you so much for joining us on Hack. Thank you for having me, Hack. The fuel is so expensive at the moment that travelling here for just two weeks, it will be easier to go two weeks to, I don't know, Bali or South Asia. On Triple Jack. Petrol stations are pumping tonight. Bit of a pun there, but honestly, they are because heaps of people are lining up to fill up their cars before midnight when the government's fuel discount ends. You might have heard about this, the fuel excise. Remember that, that tax? It was halved earlier this year by the previous government in the lead up to the last election to ease cost of living pressures. But six months later, guess what? The cost of everything's still ridiculous. Everyone's still struggling. Most of us need petrol. So what's going to happen when this excise is reinstated in full tomorrow? A price is going to spike? Maybe you're already struggling with the cost of fuel. Let me know, 0439757555. Let's ask someone who's involved in the industry. Mark McKenzie is CEO of the Australasian Convenience and Petroleum Marketers Association, and he's with us now. Hey, Mark, thanks so much for joining us on Hack. Pleasure, Dave. First, most important question, are we going to wake up to these astronomical petrol prices that we're dreading tomorrow? Uh, certainly not tomorrow, but also not Thursday. So, Dave, the uh, the wholesale price, which effectively is where the excise is targeted, will increase by 25.3 cents a litre, so it's a doubling of the excise, at 12.01 a.m. on Thursday morning, so midnight tomorrow night. What that means is that all fuel that leaves the terminal to be delivered to a service station after 12.01am on the 29th will actually go up by 25.3 cents a litre. And that doesn't necessarily mean, though, that it will go up at the pump. Right, because the government's been saying, hey, all of these um, fuel retailers have uh, petrol in stock that they bought at the cheaper price, so we shouldn't be seeing these prices go up significantly. And they've kind of put retailers on notice, right? They have. When he said they shouldn't go up significantly immediately, so and, he, and he's quite right. So we have what we call five days cover. So that means if there's a catastrophic failure with the supply of fuel, there is enough to support the demand in every capital city and region for five days. So that in that means that in the network there's five days of fuel at the lower excise. And what we're going to do progressively from midnight tomorrow night is start to replace that with the higher excise fuel. 
Now, importantly, we don't replace all of it, but we will start to see deliveries. Um, some service stations in capital cities that turn over quickly, they get a delivery a day, some twice a day. Whereas you go into outer ring and regional areas, they might get a delivery every three days, every five days, in some cases every 10 days. What that means is that because service stations are replacing their low excise fuel with the higher excise fuel at different points in time, then the prices are going to change over the next um, five to 10 days in regional areas, but in capital cities, probably within the next five days. But it also means that the challenge I have as a business, if I end up with the more expensive fuel on Thursday and I'm surrounded with a whole lot of businesses that have got the cheaper fuel, I'm going to have to make a decision about whether I pass all that um, price increase on or I, I discount some of it or I discount all of it to remain competitive. And that's the sort of thing that the ACCC will be watching over the next couple of weeks. Well, they will be watching it. They said that they're keeping a close eye on this. Mark, I wanted to ask you, we've got a message in here. It says the tax relief on petrol excise was a joke. It didn't work. The retailers all colluded and kept prices the same. That's definitely a sentiment out there that the prices have been really, really high. Is it true? Did the cut in the excise actually work? Were prices held down? They were. If you go to the ACCC website and look at the June quarterly report, what it basically says in the four weeks following the immediate excise cut, the wholesale price fell by 36 cents a litre. So that's the excise of 22.1 plus a little bit of relief that we saw in April from global prices and the retail price fell by 42 cents a litre. Importantly to remember, Dave, and I think I can understand people saying that is because what we did was to cut a national tax, which is controlled by the Australian government. But if you remember at the time, it didn't stop the global factors that were driving prices higher. So we saw those global factors continue to impact petrol prices through May and June. We hit a peak at the end of June uh, where we were starting to see prices up around the $2.18, $2.20 in the capital cities. In some of the regions, it was higher, it was in the low 230s, um, with only half the excise. So if we had not cut that excise, we would have seen prices in the 250 um, and the low to high 240s in the capital cities. So it's definitely had an effect. And I think the key thing to actually um, judge that by is that when the excise is fully restored, we're likely to see petrol prices that are about 10 to 12 cents lower than what they were before the cut. Right. So if you think about inflation and you compare the six months from March to September, putting the fuel excise back on and after the capital city petrol cycles adjust, because they've all gone up now, which is what people are looking at, um, basically we will see prices that are very similar to what we saw in March. So just quickly, if I can ask, Mark, because we've only got like 30 seconds left, but are, yep. what's the outlook for the rest of the year? Are we, because the global oil price is dropping, right? Are we going to see prices gradually go down as we head through the year? Big concerns about recession, Dave, uh, globally are sort of driving prices either flat or downward. So unlike what we were seeing in March, where we're likely to see $3 a litre oil prices, we're expecting to see, see them stay flat or slightly fall through to the end of the year. Okay. Very interesting to know. Mark McKenzie from the Australasian Convenience and Petroleum Marketers Association. Really appreciate you breaking that down for us. No problems. Thanks for having me. We've got some messages coming through on this one. Somebody says fuel price went up 40 cents yesterday on the Sunshine Coast. Another person, Greg in Adelaide, says I'm more worried about price gouging by the petrol retailers than I am about the fuel excise being reintroduced. The price of barrel oil is at the moment very low. There's no reason for these prices. Hack. This is the last push 
perhaps in our lifetime, perhaps ever. Because if it doesn't happen now, it, it, it probably never will. On Triple J. Yes, yeah, Saturday Arvo, huge for AFL fans, right? More than 100,000 crammed into the MCG, millions more tuning in on TV, and a heap of them were in Tassie, right? Because AFL's really popular in Tasmania, and you've probably heard over the years there's been this big push for our island state to get its own team. Maybe you're big on the idea. We're already hearing a lot of thoughts on this one. If you're in Tassie and you want your own team, let me know. What do you reckon it would mean for sport in Tasmania? Well, our Tassie reporter, April McLennan, has been looking into it. After I got drafted two days later, I got picked up by a couple of Freo recruiters and on a plane and left. And yeah, I remember being at home in the driveway. My sister was there, my parents, cousins, uh, grandparents. It was quite an emotional time, like, particularly my sister and my younger cousin were, got quite emotional. That's sort of something that's never really left me. That's 27-year-old Alex Pierce. He was born and bred in Olveston on the northwest coast of Lutrawitta, Tasmania. But when Alex was just 18, he moved to Western Australia to play footy for Fremantle. Oh, a little bit daunting initially, just being so far away. I'd never been to Western Australia before, so I didn't um, really know what to expect. Uh, obviously knew that I was going to have to move away um, if I wanted to play football at times. Over the years, Tassie spent millions of dollars hosting games for Hawthorne and North Melbourne. But despite some Tasmanians desperately wanting a local team, we haven't been allowed to have our own. And Alex is real worried about the lack of pathways for young people on the island to get into high-level footy. When the expansion teams have came in from Queensland and New South Wales, those teams have been able to get a lot of the talent from their area. Yeah, from like sort of teenage years, I mean, I stay in that system, train with that club before they're even drafted and then go on to represent their team. Now, the Tassie government's put in a bid to secure a 19th AFL licence, pledging more than $200 million of taxpayer funds. The government's bid for a team includes $144 million over 12 years, and it will pay $60 million towards a high-performance complex. The state government's also promised to build a new stadium at Hobart's Macquarie Point, but says it'll only pay for half of its estimated $750 million cost with the stadium proposal dependent on whether the federal government and private investors agree to pay for the other half of the costs. While the state's Labor Party are totally on board with Tassie having its own team, they don't love the stadium idea. Labor MP Janie Finlay reckons Tasmanians shouldn't pay for things beyond what the state can afford. Right now, it is not the time for this out-of-touch government to be making such a significant investment when daily Tasmanians are struggling with just making ends meet. But Tassie's Premier, Jeremy Rockcliffe, says they can invest about $12 million a year and see a return of $120 million plus. We will not be able to fund our schools, our hospitals, our police officers if we simply do nothing. We have to continue to invest. We have to continue to grow our economy. Uh, this is a southern development that will benefit all Tasmanians. On the streets of Launceston, the feeling is very mixed. Do you think Tassie should have its own AFL team? Yes, I do. Why do you think that? Um, well, we're part of, the, part of the mainland and we've got some good footballers over in Tassie, so... Yes, because it gives more opportunities to like Tassie teens and like people who want to go into the industry. Uh, no, I feel like it's a bit of a waste of money and like that money could be used for a whole bunch of other stuff. You know, we already get tourism from football, like we don't need our own football team. 
I think they should because it'd give like the younger blokes an opportunity to play a higher level. Oh God, no. It's, it's really hard down here. You know, we've got housing crisis and rental crisis, um, particularly in Tasmania, which we already know is a disadvantaged group compared to the rest of Australia and we're rural and remote. And just working in the healthcare system personally and seeing the things that are happening. We don't need AFL right now. We need more support for the community. A final decision on the bid is expected in the next week or so, in what could be Tassie's last chance to get an AFL licence. For Alex, he worries that if the state isn't successful, footy could start to die out with the rise of other sports on the island state. To think that one day soon there could be kids yeah, going to school and dreaming about representing their state at the highest level, like it's something that gives me goosebumps. And I see a world where like, if this doesn't happen, that footy really declines in this state. Hack on Triple J. April McLennan there with that story. And we've got some messages coming through. Andrew says the AFL's just trying to cash in on the success of the Jack Jumpers in the NBL. AFL's a stupid game loved by one state in one country in the corner of the globe. Get a grip, people. Really strong opinions there from Andrew. Somebody else says, why ruin our precious heritage-listed waterfront in Hobart for a stadium? And another person says, as a Tasmanian, I'm strongly against the football team and stadium. It'll cost millions of dollars that could be spent on bettering our hospitals instead. We do have a heap of messages coming through. Somebody else says Tassie deserves their own AFL team. The problem is at the moment, the big gap between the best team and the worst team in the competition. The AFL need a more even spread of players. I'm not sure how they do that, but it's interesting to see the last four grand finals were won by massive margins. Very interesting point there. It's time to move on to our next story. And you got a bit of a taste of that a little bit earlier. Guess who's on the line? It's Dr. Brad Tucker. Hack. Oh, my goodness. Three, two, one. Oh, my gosh. Oh, wow. We're getting visual confirmation. On Triple J. You know, more than 60 million years ago, something happened that changed everything. An asteroid crashed into the Earth, wiping out the dinosaurs. And since then, we've been nervously ignoring the fact that it could happen again, right? But scientists achieved something incredible this morning that means we might have an extra layer of protection if we were under threat. NASA's smashed a spacecraft into a harmless asteroid millions of kilometres away, and maybe you watched it happen live. It was a big thing this morning. You could see the asteroid getting closer and closer, and then nothing. The screen went black. So what happened after that? Let's ask Dr Brad Tucker, an astrophysicist with ANU, Hey, Brad, how exciting was it watching this this morning? I was watching. I'm sure you were watching as well. Oh, yeah. Look, you know, it it was so exciting. As you said, it got closer and closer and closer. And you kind of just knew, you know, hey, we're inventing the dinosaurs here. Armageddon 2, Earth Strikes Back. (laughs) You know, we're taking the fight to the asteroid this time. But, you know, in all seriousness, it it, it is an important development. You, when we have fighter drills, evacuation drills, and fire extinguishers, and all this sort of thing, you have it because not that you plan on having a fire emergency, but the what if that random chance. Uh, and this what that's about. You know, we know asteroids hit the Earth, so what if we were to have one hit the Earth? What can we do? And while we think it should work, you want to make sure it does work before you rely on it to save Earth. Yeah, you got to test it, right? So we sent this spacecraft. Can you explain what happened after it hit the asteroid? Because we're all watching you know, these grainy pictures of the asteroid getting closer and closer. 
closer and closer. And then the screen went black. So do we know what happened? There wasn't another camera angle, was there? <laughs> One just behind well, no, the so asteroid. In, <laughs> well, in fact, yeah, NASA kind of thought about this. And so they kind of have multiple visions of it. So there, in fact, there is an entire other satellite that was following behind. Right. So called the Chia Cube, built by the Italian Space Agency. It hitched a ride. Then about a few weeks ago, it kind of hopped off and was trailing behind it. So it imaged from kind of rear view the impact, imaged the crater, and then flew through to the debris, the rock and stuff that came off of it to give us a good understanding on the ground about what's happened. So we'll have those images. All that data is being downloaded as we speak, so it should happen over the next kind of couple of days. NASA and Europe, uh, in a mission led by Europe, are also planning a follow-up mission called HERA, which is actually going to fly to the asteroid in a couple of years and land in the crater to kind of do forensic analysis, you know, kind of investigate the crash site, so to speak. And as we speak, telescopes all around the world are monitoring the asteroid to now measure the exact shift the impact did. So how much did we move that asteroid? And you can do that by measuring how it moves around the bigger companion asteroid. I'm wondering, so if we if we find that, yeah, it did work, it knocked it off course, just say we had a massive asteroid that was threatening humanity or whatever, it would mean we'd need something pretty hefty to, to be hitting it right, to have any kind of impact. So, yeah, and this is a, a huge range of the questions. So firstly, you know, the densities and composition of this, these objects we saw from the images, it was, it looked as what we call a kind of a loose pile of rubble, kind of like a mud ball. So you can kind of have like a solid chunk of rock or this loose assortment of rock. And it seemed to be the latter, but we had no images before. Um, and if it's coming based on how much we shifted kind of tells us how far away do we need to detect it as well? Do we need, is it, did we shift it enough that we can detect it a million kilometers away, or do we need to detect it a billion kilometers away? That's a very big difference in then how we find the asteroids. So you're exactly right. So this would say, all right, we did this shift on a 160-meter asteroid. What if it was a kilometer or two kilometers? Then that tells us how far away we would need either a bigger probe, more probes. Maybe it needs a few blows, um, or you know, maybe it just needs the one blow, but really, really far away. Uh, and China, in fact, is planning a, a similar mission of a different asteroid that will essentially, the, the data from this will feed into it to adapt and see, can we do it either differently or better or shift it better, depending on the design, uh, the angle, speeds and impact. I mean, I think we can all agree, very cool and exciting to see this happen and to see hopefully that it worked. But there is also this part of me that's thinking, hold on, if everyone's going out there like so intent on testing this is there something the rest of us don't know do the experts know that there's something heading our way like how likely is it that there could be something massive hit earth that could have really horrible consequences so it's guaranteed to happen except don't worry don't worry you know when we talk about the history of the earth the the earth is going to be four billion years into the future. So it's going to exist a long time. So, you know, 66 million years ago is not that long in the history of the Earth. And so we also then think about the smaller ones. And that's what this uh, Diamorphos uh, was. The ones that are 100, couple of hundred meters, they're not going to destroy the Earth. But if they hit a city, you're talking about massive destruction, damage, and, and fatalities. And those are the ones that sneak up upon us. We know we're not complete in them. We know that they could come around. In 2013, an eight-meter one hit over Russia, causing a huge amount of damage and destroyed windows and things like that. 
So we don't have one that we're worried about, but we do know um, it's, it's going to happen at some point. I think of it this way, you know, if COVID taught us anything, hopefully it taught us that those one in 100 year events happen one in a yeah, hundred years yeah. and you know you want to be prepared to know what to do and that's kind of the case for us in astronomy we know it will happen you know maybe a couple hundred years maybe a thousand years so we may never need it but if we do need it we want to know what to do and just very very quickly like in 20 seconds brad like do we have a lot of warning when something is going to hit the earth it's quite variable and that's the problem. So right now this will tell us how far do we need to see and how big of a warning do we need? Because sometimes it's a few days, sometimes it's a hundred years. Wow. Okay. Well, I mean, we're hoping that it's not going to happen with a few days notice, but at least we got something off our sleeve, you know, really. Ex- that's right. Ex- and, and it's not reliant on Bruce Willis hanging around <laughs> and Steve Buscemi going crazy on a nest. Hey, good to know that as well. Dr. Brad Tucker from ANU, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks. And we've got some messages coming through on this one. Says Someone says, God, with the way the world's going at the moment, I'd happily welcome a giant asteroid to destroy planet Earth. Put us all out of our misery. No, come on. Come on. Hack on Triple J. Huge thanks again to Dr. Brad Tucker and everyone else who's been messaging in about the asteroid story. Very popular. Just such a hectic thing to watch live on TV, right? That's all we've got time for on the Hack Podcast for now. I'll catch you next time.